Um, this morning we're in Galatians chapter 3, 23, and we're going to read through 4, 7. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us to hear and receive God's word. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for each one that's here and for those that are online. And I pray that you've already prepared our hearts to, to hear your word this morning. And Lord, we know that your word is life. You declared that your word is life. And so let that life work in us this morning, renewing our minds, washing and giving us that regeneration of renewal and to think and see things the way you see them. Rather than trying to find ways that we can avoid hearing and doing the word, let us have hearts that are just eager to hear and be changed and let it work in us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage? It's Galatians again, starting with chapter 3 from verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because your sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. That is a wonderful passage of, of promise, of uh explanation of the reality of what it means to be in Christ. Uh, in the last few uh, weeks I, I, while I was away, we were away from Galatians, so let me do a, just a real brief review of, of where we're at, what the letter to the Galatians is all about and how this fits in. Um, the Galatian church had been just recently established by the Apostle Paul, and so um, he shortly after he gets word that they're being influenced by these Jewish teachers who are Christian Jewish teachers who are telling them they've got to be circumcised. If they're going to be saved, if they're going to be real Christians, they need to be become, in a sense, become Jews to become Christians. 
So Paul was so shocked that they'd turned so quickly away from that gospel of grace because he had explained to them how Jesus did everything, that it wasn't about works. It was, it was turning over our hearts to him and receiving what he'd done for us. So he was amazed that they'd, they'd listened to these people. So he shared his testimony about how he was saved by grace alone. I mean, here's a Christian persecutor who all of a sudden is confronted by the risen Jesus and turns into the biggest evangelist the world's probably ever known. That's amazing. And it wasn't because of anything Paul did. In fact, he did nothing. It was all because of Christ's intervention by grace. And then he went on to explain how the laws of Moses put us under a curse because the scripture says, cursed is everyone who doesn't obey at all. They promised life, um, the laws promised life to the one who lives it all, but the only one who ever lived it all was Jesus. So that leaves us pretty hopeless if all we have is the law. And now in our passage today, he continues to explain how all who place their faith in Christ are free from the curses of the law, for they have the righteousness of Jesus. We're heirs of the blessing that God promised to the world, to the people who have faith in that one who is coming, that, that one that would come through the line of Abraham, Christ Jesus. Verse 23 again, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now that phrase before faith came doesn't mean uh, before people had faith or because of course Paul has explained already in the letter that, uh, that even Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith. Before faith came means before the revelation of the new covenant in Christ and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The death and resurrection of Jesus was the revelation that the new covenant had come. It was now inaugurated. And until then, Jewish people were held captive by the laws of God. They had to live under those laws. They strove to be righteous through those laws. The Gentiles were no better off for their consciences were a law for them, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, 14 and 15. Captivity of the law wasn't an idea, uh, or wasn't a new idea, I should say, when Paul wrote this. Rabbis at the time talked about the hedge of the law and how the law, the 613 commands God gave to Moses, confined their activity and restricted what they could do. And they predicted, the rabbis actually predicted that when the Messiah came, he would break down the hedge. It, they, they were actually proclaiming the gospel ahead of time and didn't realize it. The imprisonment was to sin, as declared in verse 23. Jesus told us that when we sin, not if we sin, but when we sin, that we become servants of sin. Knowing the law, only made us more aware of sins, which makes us more accountable, and therefore the curse of the law. Jesus came as a deliverer, and who will welcome or and rejoice in a deliverer unless he knows there's something from which he needs to be delivered? 
right? We were just talking about that this morning in uh, the Bible study this morning. And who will welcome and rejoice in a deliverer unless he knows that there's something from which he needs to be delivered, unless he feels that he's in a wretched, galling bondage and that he cannot of himself burst his chains, that he can't throw off his yoke. But when a man's eyes are open to see the prison in which he is shut up, to see and to feel the chains which are fast bound round his soul and have eaten into it, when he has learned to see and to know that the pleasures, whatever they may be of sin, are only like the flesh pots of Egypt, intoxicating drugs to deprive him of all sense of his captivity, then will he long for a deliverer and rejoice on hearing of his approach and hail him when he comes into view and follow him wherever he leads. That's a quote from a pastor, Hare. By referring to the coming faith here, Paul can't mean uh, one couldn't be saved by faith before Jesus came, as I mentioned earlier, uh, his account of Abraham. The law with its sacrifices looked forward in faith that God would provide a way uh, for the forgiveness and removal of sins. And until the cross, the covenant for Jews to obey the law remained in effect, even though faith in God was always the means of salvation. Verse 23 means that Christ came to liberate us from sin and the law's demands, having fulfilled them for us. He lived them in our place. He exchanged our sins for his righteousness, for completely living the law. He then sent his spirit to guide us into holy living. He made it possible by paying our sin debt with his life. But that does not mean we can go on living as we please. The spirit can actually be more demanding than the letter. But the Spirit also gives us a heart that desires to obey and joy in that obedience. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was the guardian of the Jewish people for the best possible life. The, the law gave rules and instructions until Christ would come in order that they might look forward in faith to God's Messiah and the provision for sins. Without the Spirit directing them, they needed those general guidelines of, of right and wrong to help them understand God's holiness and the need for a deliverer. To understand this expression, we have to kind of get an idea of what guardians mean here. Guardians of children in that day were usually foreign slaves. You know, they... Uh, Rome would conquer a territory. They'd look for the most educated men, and the, the elite in Rome would then use those educated men as the tutors for their children. They were guardians. And th as the children grew up, they were completely disciplined and directed by those guardians. They didn't see their parents very often. The guardians took care of everything for them, their education, their discipline, everything. And so they're under the guardian. Um, 
they were kind of like a surrogate parent until the child matured into the likeness of their father. When the father could see that the child was grown up enough to really represent the heart of the family, was, was intelligent enough, was educated enough, was fully prepared enough to represent the family, then he could be, in a sense, fully the son and be out from under the guardian. But it was never intended that the guardian be the master of the child forever. It was only until that time came. The infilling of the spirit brings about spiritual maturity to act like the father from the heart rather than a set of rules. Amen. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You start to see the, the parallel of the guardian and the law, how it brings us up to Christ, it brings us up to full sonship, and then we're liberated. Jesus liberated us from being held captive under the law. You don't have to, as you go out the door this morning, you don't have to go out and say, now which one of the 613 laws of Moses might I break if I, oh wait, I can't turn my engine on because that's lighting a fire. I'm going to have to walk home. If you're a Jew, if you're an Orthodox Jew. We're free from those 613 laws. We can walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. Hallelujah. We are liberated. Now we have what the law pointed to, the sacrifice acceptable to God for our sins, Jesus, the Lamb of God. The Spirit will, will rarely, though, contradict the moral laws. We say we're free from the law. It's, it's absolutely true. But, you know, there were some laws that were written with the finger of God in stone. Can you imagine that? This big slab of stone, and all of a sudden... And the Ten Commandments are written in that stone with God's finger. They're the moral laws. And the moral laws don't really change because they're written in stone. They're, they're a reflection of the nature of God, and God does not change. And so God's not going to set you free from the law of adultery because he is faithful. He's not going to set you free from the law of bearing false witness because he is always true, you see? So the moral laws remain. However, all the other laws outside of those Ten Commandments uh, are no longer keeping us captive, the societal and the religious worship laws. We should realize that our old nature prefers laws over relationship. You know that? Have you experienced that? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice if, if you just had a set of 10 rules that you had to obey to make God happy? That'd be pretty easy, wouldn't it? Don't, don't, sometimes we say, I wish God would just send me a fax and tell me what he want me to do, right? If I just had that, do this and I'll be happy with you. That's kind of like the law. Only we can never quite live up to what God's requirements are. And so we need that grace and the life of Christ, the spirit of Christ in us. 
and that covering that Christ is for us that we see later in the chapter. Um, if we live by laws, we only must obey those specific areas the law commands, and we can often find a way around those rules, right? I did that law, and now I can do what I want, as long as it doesn't break those laws. No, the Spirit is with us constantly, guiding us, leading us, being that umpire in our hearts that says, uh -uh, don't, don't, don't go there. Come this way. He's there continually, all the time. You see how it's even more, in a sense, demanding than the law, but at the same time, more joyful than the law because we want to experience the life of Christ. It is the freedom of living in accord with our transformed hearts, and it's living how our Creator designed us to live. The law without the Spirit can easily be twisted into something God never intended. After all, it was the Pharisees were the most devout keepers of the law, and from them came the Christian killer, the Apostle Paul. <laughs> and all those traits we see in the legalist Pharisees that laid, Jesus said, heavy burdens on the people that they wouldn't even lift with a finger. Verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So everything Paul has written up to this point in the letter of the Galatians lead to this conclusion. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What follows in the letter points back to this one expression. Jew and Gentile are adopted into the family of God through faith in what Jesus did and become one body grafted together. This includes not only rights and inheritance, but obligations as well. In Christ, we're maturing to have the heart of the Father. That's what begins when we're born again. The new covenant is a matter of the heart rather than obedience to the rules. In all Paul referred to Jesus as the Son of God 17 times in his letters. Jesus is uniquely and exclusively the Son of God, equal with God, from all eternity, unrivaled by any creatures in his essential deity. All the more remarkable then that is Paul's description of the redeemed as sons of God. Our modern sensitivity to gender prefers, prefers the translation children rather than son, but that misses the whole point here. Israel in the wilderness, under the law, was referred to as children of God. Whether male In Christ, whether male or female, we are considered sons of God. This is because we are in Christ, who is the Son. You see? And the Son is the heir of everything. In the Old Testament, the daughters rarely received an inheritance. The property always went to the sons, mostly to the firstborn son. Sisters, the fact that God calls you sons here is not derogatory by any means. Rather, that it includes you in him who is the son and the inheritor of all things. Yeah, that should be, oh, praise God. <laughs> 
I'm glad he didn't call us daughters because daughters in the Old Testament didn't get anything. I'm in the son and therefore I am called, referred to as sons of God. When people say we're all sons and daughters of God, you, you've probably heard that. I've, I've often heard that in discussions with people. Well, we're all sons and daughters of God. It's really misguided. We're all made in the image of God. That is true. But we can only be a son of God by being in Christ, our Savior, the Son. Those who are not in Christ may have good intentions. They may be nice people, but they are not sons of God if they are not in the Son. They may become sons of God by faith in Jesus and his sacrifice for us, but that requires humility we, that we talked about this morning in the Bible study. The humility to receive conviction from the Holy Spirit so that we can repent and ask for that Redeemer. Recognize we need a Redeemer. Paul uses the phrase in Christ 127 times in his letters. And it's the same idea as the next verse, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, this expression, baptized into Christ, is, it's not talking about the ordinance of baptism, but rather immersed into Christ and thereby into the family of God when you receive Christ as your Savior. The ceremony of baptisms declares that you were already baptized into Christ, meaning you have become immersed into the Lord's body, the word comes from the way that they used vats of dye. You know, they would have different vats of different colors. And you, you would take the material and you would baptize it into the color. It means to be immersed in and saturated with. So you could change this word to give a fuller meaning, um, immersed and saturated into Christ. As many as of you who were immersed and saturated into Christ have put on Christ. You have Jesus' color, okay? Saturated with Jesus. And everyone who's baptized into Christ has the same color. It's not the color of the world. It's his color. Putting on Christ, it's one of my favorite Paulisms in the letters. Um, Christ is our covering. We're clothed in him. You know, this is, I'm going to go just a little aside. In Genesis, Adam and Eve didn't realize they were naked until they sinned. And um, there, uh, there's a brother, a uh, teacher in California. I can't remember his name. Chuck, Chuck Misler. Uh, he gave a teaching once that said, and that really hit me, that, wow, that must be the case, that, they were clothed in glory before the fall. And when they fell, the glory was gone, and they recognized their nakedness. But now, because of Christ, we can dress ourselves in glory again, dress ourselves in Christ. The put on is, is, a, is the same term they use to, to, to dress yourself. You can dress yourself in Christ. It's, you know, if you go to the armor of God in Ephesians 
uh, chapter 6, every one of those uh, descriptions go back to the Word of God, and Jesus is the Word made flesh. So when we put on the armor of Christ, we're putting on Christ. We're clothed in him. God sees his righteousness and not our failures. Thank God for grace, amen. We put off the old man and we put on Christ. Baptism pictures the old man being buried and, and rising to new life in Jesus' resurrection. We should be completely changed, a new creation. It's not that we just try to imitate him, but that our life is dependent on and drawn from him. And that can be true for anyone who will come to God believing his word by faith. It's what makes the body of Christ one. It's our, our source of unity. We are all who are in Christ are in him together. And that includes commitment to one another as well. You know, when I, when I pray, um, I, I don't know, most of us, I, I confess that when I pray, I it's easy for my mind to just go off in all these tangents. So I have to use visual pictures to help me stay focused. And one of the pictures that I use is I picture the throne of God as described in the book of Revelation. And as and myriads of billions of people around the throne, I picture it three-dimensionally and like a globe. And in the center is the throne, the Ark of the Covenant, with the Shekinah, the glow, the glow that represents the presence of God, and Jesus at the right hand, sitting on the Ark of the Covenant, and the seraphim flying around singing holy. And, and I go through those people, but before I dare go through those people, I put on Christ. I picture myself clothed in Christ. And so as I approach the throne and those seraphim flying around the throne who protect, they protect the holiness of God, what do they see? They see Jesus. I'm dressed in Jesus. And they let me in so I can approach the throne of God. That helps my mind stay focused and helps me realize what a privilege we have in prayer to be clothed in Christ to go before the Father clothed in Christ. Wow. Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are one regardless of gender, regardless of culture, regardless of status. We all have Jesus' color. We all drink of the same Holy Spirit who unites us. And so, of course, there's no need for circumcision of the flesh like these false teachers were teaching or to go back to the laws of Moses, which they were, the, those teachers were insisting that Galatians had to do. If they, now, if they want to honor the Jews, want to honor the covenant with, that Abraham and Moses made with God, that you can do that. There's not a sin to do it, but you don't have to do it. And certainly Gentiles don't have to. In Christ, our hearts are circumcised, which is what circumcision represented all along. The oneness mentioned here has to do with salvation and the family of God. You are all, all of you, no matter where you come from. It, however, does not apply to roles in the church body. People try to apply this verse to roles in the church 
to sexual relations, when other verses clearly tell us that that is not the case. Cafeteria Christians, I like to call them. I like this verse, but I don't like all these verses, so I'm just going to have one helping of this verse. And I'm going to misinterpret it from the context to fit it into what I wanted to say. People, uh, I, I, it all always comes back to, do you believe this word was overseen from God from the beginning? That it is without error. That God the Father, who is the master of everything, sovereignly saw this word protected and guided. And as Peter said, he breathed through those who wrote it. If you believe that, you can't take one verse and interpret it differently from verses that say something else. You have to see how they come together. You have to interpret them with each other because God doesn't contradict himself. If you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, well, um, not sure why you're here because this is what it's all about for us. It's the word of God. It, it, it gives us, it's our life. It teaches us what truth is. It gives us a foundation. And the context here is clearly regarding salvation being a part of the body of Christ. The word of God will never contradict itself if we understand it correctly. Leaders are servants of the flock. And you can serve the flock without a title. But how sad to leave your brothers and sisters over the desire for the title pastor or elder. They're interchangeable, those terms. They're just servants of the congregation. They're not lords over the flock. We'll, elders will be held accountable to God for how we led the church and what we taught. Women clearly have an important role in the church, and we all need one another in our God-given roles. All of us are equally valued because we are in the sun. Whether the culture is swinging in one direction or another does not affect the word of God. The word of God is for every culture in every age. Christians live in the biblical culture because we're citizens of heaven and we will never fit in. Verse 29, and if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. The people of faith are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. They're heirs of the blessings promised to Abraham. That's because like Abraham, we believe the promise and are counted as righteous. We believe what God said. That promise is that through his descendant, the whole world would be blessed, all the nations of the earth. And we have received that blessing in Messiah's atonement and promised Holy Spirit. Our part is just faith. Just like Abraham, we believe God. Jesus did the work that made it possible by taking our sins on himself. Some of the other blessings, such as the promise of the land and some of the promises through the prophets, seem to be specifically to the physical descendants of Abraham. And there, some of them are stated unconditionally, uh, so they will apply to physical descendants. But the promised blessing to the world is the great blessing, and it's ours forever. 
chapter 4, verse 1, I mean, and 2, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So Paul's going back to this picture of a guardian. In that age, you had to be approved as mature by your father before rights of an heir were given to you. It wasn't just by birth. You had to reach that stage in your life. And it kind of seems wiser to me than setting an age. Oh, at 18, he's mature, you know, or 21, he's an adult, whatever. No, people mature differently, and they understood that. So the father had to watch the child's development and pick that time when he believed he'd become mature. And when the father saw the son was wise enough to represent the household, he would have a ceremony, toga virilis, virilis, yeah, virilis, toga virilis. It's when he, he calls all the friends and family and he ceremonially puts a robe on his child, the robe of an adult, okay? Now you see the picture Paul's painting? He places that robe and everyone knows now he represents the family. Paul is comparing Israel under the law to an immature child waiting for the time to come when they were ready to inherit the promises. And the law was a guardian or a manager until the promised Messiah came. Then he could, we could put on the robe that is Jesus Christ. We can represent the household of God. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The Jewish people were still learning spiritual truth through the law, revealing man to be sin, sinful and in need of a savior. Just like parents tell tells a child, don't touch this and don't do that and be sure to sit, stay in the yard, don't run out in the street. The law gave rules to help keep them safe from the destructiveness of the elementary principles of this world, such as greed, sex, power. I can imagine these, these revelations came to Paul as he was studying the Torah in the Syrian desert, and drop by drop, the revelations start coming together as he saw what God was doing, keeping sin in check through the law, but revealing our need for a savior, until the perfect time came when the promised Messiah would come. He looked at Israel's repeated failure to obey the law and the idolatry that seduced them and tempted him as well. And doing so would reveal the need for the promised Messiah. He'd recognize the need for that Redeemer to come and redeem us. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The time set by the Father came to make a way that we might be adopted by faith. Jesus was sent into the world in the body of a baby through a woman. Not a man and a woman, but the Virgin, Mary. While the Jews were still under the law, this is the gospel. God sent forth his Son and Spirit to awaken faith in us. It was time for God that God set. And you know why it was? Part of the reason is the population of the world, if we go back to Adam and Eve and you go through the flood and then 
go along, goes like this, and then comes the Roman Empire. And the population of the world on a graph starts curving. And it starts going up like that. That turning point was when Christ came. I've heard it said that there's more people alive today than have ever lived because of the population explosion. So he came at that perfect time. Not only was it a perfect time as the population of the world began to increase, but Romans had just built these roads so that they could quickly spread the gospel to all these different places. Ships were now traveling farther than they'd ever traveled before. Greek was becoming the worldwide language so that the gospel written in this very explicit language that could, uh, Greek is such a uh, precise language that we could really understand what was being written. And documents were becoming, beginning to be preserved. That's why we have so many manuscripts, ancient manuscripts dating back all the way even to the second century. Many in the third and fourth century, thousands and thousands of manuscripts to make sure we can confirm this is what was written. Women at that time were praying to be the mother of the Messiah. Foreigners actually were looking at Israel and expecting the rise of a king there. Everything was moving toward that predestined moment in time when God would reveal the means by which he would redeem us by which we could become part of the family of God through faith. Faith was always the way of salvation, but Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, became the sacrifice for our sins, which is how our adoptions as sons was made legally possible. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The purpose of his coming was to bring about our transition from being under the law to adoption as mature sons, inheriting all the rights that come with it. We had to be redeemed to be sanctified so that we could be vessels able to receive the Holy Spirit. We need to realize I'm sorry, my screen's jumping around here. What our adoption means. We can now participate with our Father as we pray his will into the earth and interact with others as his hands and feet in the world. It's time for us to put on Christ. It reminds me of that hymn, Let Others See Jesus in Me. Six, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, the full sonship and redemption enabled the Spirit to fill us, and so we cry at the leading of the Holy Spirit through the Spirit in us, just as Jesus cried out to the Father, Abba, Father. We are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus, who was the only one to cry out like that. He's the heir of all things, and so we are co-heirs with him. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Hallelujah. Now we are no longer under the old do's and don'ts with our guardian watching over our every move. We are full sons and have received our rights as sons and heirs through God's gracious provision of Jesus. This is the point Paul's trying to convey to the Galatians 
who think they need to obey the laws of Moses to somehow please God. We can come boldly to the throne of grace in our time of need and expect that he will hear and help. We can choose to walk in the spirit and crucify the flesh, donning that robe of Christ. We can speak truth in Jesus' name and call people from darkness to light. We can pray God's will into the earth. We can live as instruments of righteousness. And unlike the world, which curses God for their difficulties, we cry out to God as our Abba Father. He disciplines us because we are sons, and that's evidence that we are full sons and no longer under the tutelage of the law. The expression, if a son, means that not all are sons. Those wonderfully freeing abilities are not ours unless we have been adopted. The only way to be adopted is to be in the Son and let the Son live in us. And that not only means we have a special relationship with our Heavenly Father, but that we also have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for us while we are kept by the power of God through faith unto the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, sometimes... We feel like these Galatians. We think, maybe I should be doing something more. Maybe I've missed something. Uh, maybe I'm not truly saved. Wondering if the good news is really for us. It's not about being good enough. Only Jesus was good enough. His mercy and grace brought you into the family of God. Recently, I heard this expression, and I think you will be able to relate to it. I'm not what I should be, but I'm not who I used to be, which gives me faith that he's going to finish the work in me. Are you in Christ? He invites us to come to him and receive that adoption by faith because of what he's done for us.